At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Amen. Amen. I'm grateful for the opportunity to worship with you guys and to open God's word now as we continue to fix our eyes and hearts towards him. Um, And uh, we are continuing in 1 John. So if you have a Bible and are following along with us, we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Actually, verses 10 through 18. I want to read verse 10 for us. 1 John chapter 3, If you got a Bible, turn to the very end, start working your way leftward, and you'll pretty quickly hit 1 John. All right, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 is where we are this morning. You remember the Apostle John is writing back to some churches that he helped plant. He's writing this letter back to some churches that he helped pastor, and he's concerned for them. He's concerned that many have gone out from the original churches they started and they're teaching things contrary to the gospel. They're teaching a different doctrine than what Jesus' original apostles taught. And so he's writing back to these churches in order to keep them in fellowship. He says, I'm writing to you so that you'll be in fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This will make my joy complete if you stick with us, if you stick with the gospel. And so now he's writing to them out of concern that they continue in love. This is a distinguishing mark of who God's people are and who are not God's people, is that they love one another. And so we're continuing to focus on this important theme of love for God and love for one another. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder his brother? Because Cain's own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but let us love in deed 
and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A recent article in Science Magazine summarized the research of 15 university professors on the topic of political sectarianism. And these researchers define political sectarianism this way. They say, it is the growing tendency of one political group to view its opponents as morally repugnant. In other words, one political group won't simply view another political group as a group with different political views. Instead, they view their political opponents as moral degenerates. And these researchers identified three key ingredients to this destructive form of polarization. First, moralization. Second, avoidance. And third, what they call othering. So it's more than thinking your moral compass is superior to someone else. It's more than simply avoiding or disliking someone else's perspective. It's psychologically, intellectually, relationally placing the person or the different party into a whole new alien or other category that is altogether different from you to the point where you no longer see them as fully human. This is a scientific explanation for what we've seen invade the psyche of our nation, and we can sum it up in a word, hatred. And the hatred that lies at the root of political sectarianism is not just some impersonal issue that's invaded our broader culture. No, it's made deep inroads into all of our lives and communities, including the church. And let's be clear about this. Some things are worth hating, Some things are worth hating. There are insignificant things worth hating, like maybe whatever your least favorite food is. For me, it was for a long time mayonnaise. I hated mayonnaise. I just couldn't stand the appearance or the texture or the smell. It just repulsed me. I hated it. But you know what? Actually, in the last few years, mayonnaise has actually grown on me a little bit. So maybe there's hope. But there are some insignificant things worth hating like that. And there are some more significant things worth hating, like pandemics and cancer and war and suffering and sin. We should hate sin. There are several places in the Bible that make clear God hates sin. So there are some insignificant things we can hate and there are some significant things we can hate. But where we go wrong is when our hate is placed on people. When we, like so many political opponents today, start to see one another as subhuman, when we start to place one another in an other category, unworthy of respect, unworthy of dignity, unworthy of love. Now, you may be thinking, come on, I'm a nice person. I'm a peaceful person. I'm not a hater. But the truth is that the capacity to hate is wrapped up into our brokenness because of sin. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 30, there's this well-known description of humanity's fallen sinful state that the Apostle Paul describes. And one of the things in this long list that we are under sin is haters of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 30. That's what sin does to us. It devolves us to the point of not only being able to hate other people, but even hating God himself. And consider the example from 
the life of the Apostle John. You remember this scene from the Gospel of Luke when the Apostle John was still the disciple John. It's Luke chapter 9 during a time when Jesus is beginning his fateful trip to Jerusalem, but Jesus is starting this trip to Jerusalem from the region of Samaria. Well, there's this certain town in Samaria that finds out Jesus and his disciples are going to Jerusalem, and the people in that Samaritan town throw out Jesus and his disciples. They say, no way, forget you. If you're going to Jerusalem, we don't want here at all. You can't travel here through, even if you're just stopping for a break. Not here. And if you know anything about relationships between Jews, which is what Jesus and all of his disciples were, and Samaritans, if you know anything about relationships between Jews and Samaritans, then you'd know that why these Samaritans don't even want Jesus and his disciples traveling through their town. Because there was a long, long standing rivalry between Jews and Samaritans that ran deep. It was a religious and political and cultural feud that was huge. So these Samaritans refuse, reject, and turn away Jesus and his disciples. And listen to what Luke records in the very next verse, chapter 9, verse 54. When Jesus' disciples, James and John, the apostle of love, the beloved disciple, How's he going to respond to these Samaritans? When Jesus, and, when, when, Jesus, uh, when Jesus' disciples, James and John, saw the Samaritans reject them, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these Samaritans? So this is John's plan for how to respond to these unwelcoming Samaritans, to pray to God for firepower from heaven to come down and annihilate their enemies. They want to match curse with curse. They want to meet hate with hate. No grace, no compassion, no patience, no love. And Jesus rebukes them. The very next verse, right after they lay out their plan, verse 55, Jesus turns to James and John and calls them out for their hatefulness. And remember, this this scene in Luke chapter 9 takes place three years into Jesus' discipleship of John. So it's not like John was a total amateur in the ways of Christ, and yet still he struggled with hate. Just like all of us, whether it's the Samaritans we look down on, or maybe our political opponents we look down on, maybe it's another country, maybe it's another kind of people, maybe it's people in your own family, people you're morally repulsed by, people you stay away from, people who are other from you, people we hate. We all struggle with this, just like John. But between Luke chapter 9 and 1 John, the apostle had a lifetime of being schooled in the spirit of Christ. Now he's more mature. He's more seasoned. He's softer. He's stronger. And as we pick up his letter today in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, we'll find him talking about the distinguishing difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. 
And he doesn't give a third option when it comes to our spiritual identity. People are either one or the other. There's no in-between. And what he says is the difference between the children of the devil and the children of God is love for God and love for other people expressed through serving. So look again at verse 10, which drives home John's claim. This is the section we're focusing on flows out of this verse, verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, what's guiding your heart today? What's filling your head today? What's motivating your head, your hands today? Love or hatred? Well, John is here to school us on the difference. It's not as obvious as you may think because we're all good at self-deception. We need God's word and we need one another to help us recognize the difference between hate and love. Because I think we can say that right now our world, our nation, our church, our own families need to see the difference between hate and love. So first, the apostle instructs us, hate takes. The first distinguishing feature of hate, hate takes. So John opens up this section in verse 11 there. Look again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. He says to them, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you are to love one another. So you remember, John has just finished laying out the difference between the children of the devil and the children of God. The children of the devil do not practice righteousness, and the children of God do practice love. So what was in verse 10. Well, now in verse 11, he's sticking with that theme of love. And he says, you've heard from the very beginning, likely a reference to the beginning of his ministry with this church. He says, ever since I shared the gospel with you, ever since I helped you form this church, from the very start, you've known God's call on your life to love. So he sticks with this theme of love, but he's going to explain love by contrasting it with hate. So let's keep going. Verse 12. He says, you have known from the beginning to love one another. Verse 12. But we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So you see here, he's contrasting our call to love one another and Cain's act of hate. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in the opening chapters of that book, we're told about the creation of the world. We're told about the creation of the first humans, Adam and Eve, and we're told about how they rebel against God, trying to be like God instead of loving him. Then in chapter four, we're told about Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And within this story, we find out that Abel has brought an offering to God, and God is pleased. God accepts Abel's offering. Cain then brings an offering to God, and God rejects it. God doesn't want it, and it's hard to tell exactly what is the difference between these two offerings. One was a meat offering, the other was a grain offering. It's hard to know exactly why God accepts the one and rejects the other based on the substance of the sacrifice, but it's clear 
that God can sense some sort of sinful motivation in Cain. And God speaks this peculiar line to Cain. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And it's going to take you over if you don't master it. Well, Cain apparently does not master it because the very next verse we find out that Cain later murders his brother. Hate takes. And Cain shows his hate by taking his brother's life. So you remember verse 10. That John said the children of the devil are characterized by unrighteousness while he's saying Cain is the prototype child of the devil. Again, verses 12 through 13, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder Abel? John says because Cain's own deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. So Cain, as a child of the devil, was characterized by unrighteousness. Abel's life, on the contrary, was characterized by righteousness. And Cain doesn't like this righteous brother he has around. Abel's righteousness sort of highlights or underscores Cain's own unrighteousness. And probably many of us had a sibling who did this to us. In one way or another, maybe your brother or sister was really good at schoolwork, and because your academically inclined sibling was around, it sort of highlighted that maybe you weren't so academically strong. I know that was the case for me. I had an older brother who didn't even have to try, and he made all A's. I made A's and B's and a few C's, which is great if my brother didn't make all A's without even trying. Well, it's a similar concept, though, much more serious here. Abel's righteous life shines a light on Cain's unrighteous life. And Cain doesn't like this. And so Cain takes. Cain takes him out. He takes his life. And John's going to say to us in the next verse, this is the way of the world. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He's saying, if you, in fact, are children of God and your lives are characterized by righteousness, then the world, the children of the devil, whose lives are not characterized by righteousness, they are going to hate you, just like Cain hated Abel. Don't be surprised. This is the way of the world, the way of hate. And then in verse 14, John circles back to this truth that the children of God are characterized by love. He says there, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, but whoever does not love abides in death. So now he switches up metaphors. He's no longer using the language of children of the devil versus children of God. Now he's using the language of life versus death. Those who have passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life, those people have love for the brothers. But whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love remains in death. The loveless are lifeless, he says. So you see the irony. Cain kills Abel, but Cain's really the one who's dead. Whoever does not love abides in death, spiritual death, eternal death. 
Finally, John concludes this little section on hate in verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in essence, John says the same thing here. He says, haters, murderers, don't have eternal life abiding in them. In fact, they are dead spiritually. It's essentially the same thing he said in verse 14. What he adds in this verse is what's shocking about this verse, what he says there at the start of it. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So not only does he equate murder with hate, as in the case of Cain killing Abel, here he equates hate with murder. In other words, not only are all murderers haters, all haters are murderers. Now you may be thinking, I know some hateful people, and I've done some hateful things in my life, but I've never murdered anybody. I've never taken anybody's life. I mean, I may have taken their money through theft. I may have taken their dignity through mean words. I may have taken their respect through talking bad behind their back, but I've never taken anybody's life. I'm not a murderer. That's conventional thinking, right? But God's word challenges our status quo. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Every hater is a murderer, the apostle said. Cain murdered Abel by taking his life. John murdered the Samaritans by asking to take their lives. And we murder our brothers and sisters when we act and speak on hate towards them. And we murder our political opponents when we act and speak on hate Towards them, and we murder our relatives when we act and speak on hate towards them, and we murder when we act on speak on hate towards anyone, any person. Listen, you hate mayonnaise? That's fine. You hate pandemics? Me too. But when we place our hate on people, we murder people, and we know. That murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. Hate takes, the apostle says, but love serves. Remember, John is helping us get clear on love and hate. Hate takes, and we're about to find out, love serves. So let's look at this. Starting again in verse 16, John writes, Hate takes, but by this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. So in the same way that John used the example of Cain to teach us about hate, now he's going to use the example of Christ to teach us about love. By this, we know love. By this, we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. Do you see the difference? Cain took Abel's life. Jesus gave his life away. He laid down his life for us. He sacrificed his life for us. He died for us so that we wouldn't have to. He served us in the most 
incredible, unthinkable way, the eternal God in the flesh laid down his life for us. And so we ought also to love one another. The best stories are stories of sacrificial love. William Wallace lays down his life for his beloved Scotsman. Harry Potter laid down his life for his friends, especially Ron and Hermione. And Iron Man, even. Tony Stark lays down his life for half of humanity when he snaps the Infinity Gauntlet at the end of Avengers Endgame. Sorry for all those spoilers, but... These stories are compelling because sacrificial love is compelling. Sacrificial love is true love. And that's exactly the kind of love on display in the cross. By this, we know love. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. I shared this with you guys a couple of months ago when we were looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 because the apostles making the same point in that chapter. The cross not only shows us how to get saved, the cross shows us how to treat people. The cross not only shows us how to get saved. Oh, praise God, the cross shows us how to get saved. That's why we wear it on necklaces and put it on steeples and make really cool ones for tattoos. I don't have one, but. The cross shows us how to get saved. And the cross shows us how to treat people. And John gets real practical with this in the next verse. Verse 17, Jesus loved us by serving us, so we ought also to serve one another, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against his brother, how does God's love abide in that person? So God's love is sacrificial love. But if you're holding on to the world's goods, money, clothes, food, whatever, you're holding on to these things, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to serve your brother in need, then how can God's love abide in you? We show God's love by sharing our goods with other people. But if we don't share our goods with other people, then we don't know God's love. That's John's reasoning here. There's a really perfect example of this in the Christmas classic book and movie, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. At the very start of this story, the Grinch is standing outside his house on top of a mountain, looking down on Whoville, who's making preparations for Christmas. And then there's this scene Grinch is looking down on Whoville, and there's this scene where you get an X-ray vision at his chest, and this graphic shows his heart shrink down three or four times. He closes his heart towards these people, and then he takes. He takes Christmas from them. Hate takes. Love serves Love sees a brother's need in life and fills it. Love has an open heart and open hands, empty hands. You take from me. Verse 18, John finishes this section on love. 
He says, little children. Little children. He loves these people. He sees them as his children. He longs for them to get this. Little children. Let us not love in word or talk. Let us love in deed and in truth. So he says, love is a verb. Love expresses itself. True love expresses itself in action. So I don't know about any of you guys who are married here, but speaking my wedding vows to Meg was as easy as speaking anything else. I drew a breath, and then I spoke the words. I do. Super easy. Super easy to say, I commit myself in love to you until death do us part. Not hard to say, but to do it, to love not just in word or talk, but in deed and truth, that's a higher calling. That's our true calling, to show love, to act in love, to serve. And so we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to ask ourselves, We can't just seek to understand this word. We've got to seek to apply this word. We've got to ask ourselves, who is your heart closing off to? Who is your heart closing off to? Who in your heart are you just like, I hate him. Who is there in your life that at one point it was easy to say, yeah, I love them. They're great. It was easy to say those words. It was easy to love in talk, but maybe now over time, it's not so easy to love in action. I've had the opportunity to be here for only two years But I've seen a lot of new people show up at this church and they stay around for a few months and I'll talk to them later and they're like, man, I love this church. Woodside Lapeer, the music is awesome. The people are great. The preacher is decent. I love this church. Just a few months. But you get a year or two down the road and those words get tested. As easy as it was to say, I love this church. It's now as hard to show love through sacrifice, through serving, through pressing into conflict. Let us not love in word and talk. Let us love in deed and truth. Who is there in your life that you think that is the last person I want to serve? Who is there in your life that you think that is the last person I want to give anything to? The only thing I want to give them is a mouthful or a fistful. Who is there in your life? Last person you want to serve. Who's God bringing up for you? John's strategy here is to hold up two examples. The example of Cain and the example of Christ. An example of hate, and an example of love. An example of rage and revenge, and an example of selflessness and generosity. And he's calling us, follow Christ, not Cain. It is not easy. 
It is not for the faint in heart. But he's saying, walk the cross-bearing path of patience, grace, and humility. Walk the cross-bearing path of love. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Church, do you see that? When we show servant-hearted love, we show off the Savior. When we show off Christ-like love, we show off Christ. Through our acts of generosity, through our deeds of service, through our sacrificial giving, we put Christ on display. So this call is not about us showing off how loving we are. It's about us showing off how loving Christ is. It's about imitating his sacrifice so that the world can see an alternative. So that the world can see an alternative to bitterness, an alternative to violence, an alternative to hate. Church, there are many people in Lapeer County that will never come here for one reason or another. They will never go to a life group with a house full of bunch of Christians. They'll never do it. They'll never get a chance to hear Christ here or in a life group. But they can see Christ and we can put him on display through our acts of love. It's about him. It's about showing him off. It's about, as we're going to sing in this last song, magnifying Christ. So let's stand as we prepare to sing and give our lives to this great cause of showing off the Lord Jesus, not only with our lips, but with our lives. And I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbled. We come before you having reflected on our own lives through your word. And we see our brokenness. We see our neediness. We see our sin. We see our hate. God, we thank you for the light of your word. We thank you for the way you love us by speaking even difficult truths to us. And so God, help us to receive this word about the reality of hate that exists in all of our hearts. And God, we pray draw us to the cross. God, we thank you for your unending love that flows from the foot of the cross. Grace to cover every single one of our sins forever. Thank you, God. And God, I pray too that we wouldn't just be people who are saved by the cross, we would be people who live out the cross. Cross-centered lives that show off the sacrifice, the giving nature, the selflessness of Jesus. And so God, empower us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to see Lapeer County come alive to cross over from death to life, to become children of God born into your family. We wanna see that happen, God. People begin to love People begin to live in righteousness. We want to see that happen in our community. We want to see it happen in our families. But God, first do this work in us. Humble us, 
strengthen us so that Christ would be magnified all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.